Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Brethren, what does our Christian calling mean in our present days? What should a truly Christian life look like? These questions and other important questions are now the topic that Paul addresses in the, his letter to the Romans. The theological foundation has been laid out, as we described before, in the first five chapters. And now Paul, after laying down that theological foundation, is taking more of a practical perspective to the Christian life. So let's read it together in Romans chapter 6 and verses 12 to 23, which is our text for today. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, there is, there is indeed a lot that Paul has packed in, in this brief passage. 
but it's very important and we need to understand it today. So let's look at it together, step by step. Verses 12 and 13 to begin with. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Well, in this part of Paul's letter, as I said before, he begins to address a more practical perspective of a Christian life, but it's not disconnected from the previous. In fact, it begins with that term, therefore. Therefore, it refers to what Paul had written before, of course. It, it refers to the fact that our death to sin leads us to a new life in Christ and a new identity, as we discussed last week, a new identity that now needs to be finding, to, to find its expression in our daily life. Notice what he wrote, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. So, as Paul had mentioned before, we cannot continue to let sin rule over us to satisfy its cravings. And Paul stressed the mortality, however, here. This is important to notice in this. Paul stresses the mortality of our bodies. It's almost like what we read in the Ecclesiastes. We try to, say, to serve the, 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 our bodies. We try to have a good life in this life. We try to have all sorts of different things that we want to, to have, that we dream to have in this life, but then it all vanishes. Vanity of vanity says the Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. And Paul reflects that teaching in here by reminding us that what we are trying to serve here is a mortal body. It won't last. It seems like you look back in the past and the life that we spent, and as we look back, it seems like it's all fleeting in a moment. He continues writing, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, instruments here is the, the, the translation of a Greek term that could either be understood as being weapons or tools, for example. Just like energy uh, can be used for good or for bad, what is translated here as instrument is something that can be used either as weapons for, for something bad or as tools for something constructive, a constructive use. In this context here, obviously, we're talking about weapons because we are talking about instruments of unrighteousness. So weapons against righteousness, weapons that serve the unrighteousness of sin. But then Paul continues and adds an instruction. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Now, he had addressed this concept of being alive from the dead before, but now he stresses that in, in this new context here that explains that as we have a new identity and a new life in Christ, that is a new life that we're called to live. No longer a life of service to sin, but a life to serve, to serve God, to serve Christ, a life of service to him. And notice what he adds to that. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So once again, he uses the same term, the Greek term that can be translated either weapon of or tools. 
And it's talking about here it being instruments of righteousness. So in this sense, is a positive use of that term that means tools of righteousness, tools that are used to, to serve righteous and beneficial purposes, to build up, to begin constructive purposes. Now, we know from history that so many different things can be used for good or for bad uses. You know, we have tools that can turn into weapons. We have energy that can be used for good or can be used for very destructive purposes. And Paul is making this difference. If we use, if we make our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, they will turn into weapons that destroy. But if we put our bodies at the service of righteousness, as instruments of righteousness to God, they will become useful tools for edification, to build up, to be constructive for constructive use. In verse 14, Paul wrote, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul here enters into a very important topic based on on an essential truth. And that essential truth is written right there in verse 14. You are not under the law, but under grace. What does this mean in practice? That's what Paul is addressing. If a Christian is under the law, that could very well lead to be trapped in in a form of legalism because it would lead the Christian to attempt to qualify himself or herself to be loved by God, to be accepted by God. The idea of legalism is that you cannot be acceptable to God unless you perform in a certain way, unless you keep certain rules and certain laws in a certain way, then and only then you'll be acceptable to God. If a Christian is under grace, that obviously in this statement in here would be a good thing, but it can also lead to a misconception. If we are not careful, we, we need to be cautious because grace without obedience leads to liberalism where we are told that we have no responsibility whatsoever. I mean, after all, it is God who does, does it all by grace God that justifies, God that makes you right, God does it all, so therefore we have no need for a response whatsoever. And that would turn into liberalism, which is not correct either. The correct understanding that we need to read into the statement here of Paul is that God is indeed doing a work in us. And he is indeed doing that work by indwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. But as we trust him, we choose to participate with him in his work. We're not just passive spectators, but we're participants in that as well. But we realize and we understand that we're not doing it on our own strength. We can never do that. We could never fulfill the requirements of God on our own strength. But willingly surrendering to him, we allow him, we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, and we participate in that work, We take part in that work out of devotion and out of love, out of gratitude for God's grace and out of devotion to him as an expression of our love for the one whom loved us first. Now in verse 15, Paul wrote, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Now Paul seems to be repeating that context and that concept in this context as well, 
he addresses a needed balance in here. Paul denounces legalism as well as liberalism. And he does it through that rhetorical question. Should we continue as always because we are under grace? The answer that he provides here, however, is the same as it did before. May it never be. Legalism is not the answer. Trying to gain our acceptance by God is not going to work. It's not the answer. On the other hand, liberalism is not the answer either. We cannot continue as always expecting God to do everything for us without our participation at all, because that's not going to happen. The answer, as we said a moment ago, is our willing participation, our surrender to God, to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Let's say, for example, that I have a a major problem in my life, a problem that I need to overcome. And I absolutely need to overcome that problem because it's creating havoc in my life. Legalism would tell me, well, you're a bad person, and you need to overcome that. You need to work on that, and you need to make sure that you change. So I try to change it. I work on it. I try to overcome it. And generally speaking, as I, we see in many, many examples, we end up failing. So legalism said, well, that's because you didn't try hard enough. You need to try harder. And so we try harder, and we fail harder. Legalism continues. Well, if you were a good person, you would try harder, and you would try so hard that you will eventually make it. But the answer is, yeah, we can make some progress, but we won't be able to get there. Liberalism, on the other hand, would would tell me, why do you even bother? I mean, God is going to take care of it, right? God is gracious. He's forgiven you. He will take care of it. He will overcome it for you. You don't have to worry about anything. You just stay back, lay back. Don't worry. It will be okay. Well, that's not right either. The Christian approach in that example would be for me to realize, to acknowledge the fact that I have no control. I have no control. I think I'm in control. We all think we are in control. In fact, oftentimes I, I tell people, we, it seems like we, we're control freaks in here, right? Um, we, we don't really have control over circumstances, over a lot of things. We can make choices, however. But in this case, if I have, I'm facing a serious problem that I need to overcome, what it would look like in a Christian life, it would look like me falling on my knees, perhaps on my face, worshiping God, confessing, Father, I confess, I acknowledge that I do not have what it takes to overcome this. I acknowledge that I am helpless to overcome this problem, that I cannot do it on my own. And I don't even ask that, I, that you would help me to do that, because that would imply that somehow, if you give me enough help, I will be able to do it on my own. Lord, I confess to you that I'm incapable of doing it, but I acknowledge that you can. And so I ask you, and I pray that you would work it out in me, that you would change my heart, that it would change me, that you would transform my heart, my way of looking at things, my way of living, my way of thinking, my way of being, in such a way that your work may be manifest in me. And I am fully committed to participate in the work that you're doing in me, to be part of that, to go along with you and not be passive, but being actively involved in participation, in taking part of that, in making it, bringing it to life in my life as you work in me. In verse 16, Paul continues, 
Do you not know them when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for, of obedience? You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So notice that Paul here presents an either-or argument. He does not present a third, supposedly neutral way, because there is no such thing. We either serve God or we serve sin. We cannot serve both. We cannot serve sin and, and pretend that we're serving God at the same time, because we are not. We either, either serve one or the other. He writes in this verse, You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now, there is a choice implied in that. The choice of who we choose to serve. Whenever that choice is made, however, we need to realize that another step is taken towards serving the one that we choose to obey, becoming more and more servants of the one that we choose to obey. And Paul adds in here, either of sin resulting in death. So here's what happens. Sin will lure us with something that seems to be beautiful. It seems to be shining, appealing, desirable, but it has a deadly hook attached to that. Look at the relationships that we see around us today. Many of them are built in, in sin. And the expectation is that they will work, they will be wonderful, they will be great. I mean, sin presents its lure very nicely. Very, it makes it look very desirable. But then what really happens is that those relationships are broken. Those relationships don't work out. Paul continues here in verse 16 saying, Either of sin or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So there is an alternative to the trap of sin. There is an alternative to that sin that lures us but then does not deliver. It only delivers destruction. And that alternative is to trust God. And as we trust God, we surrender to Him. And in our surrender to Him, we allow Him to do His work in us, that transforming work that He does and performs in us through the Holy Spirit that leads us to obedience, but not a legalistic obedience, but obedience that stems from our appreciation, our gratitude for His grace that is now in us, and that love that is at work in us, His love that is at work in us, and we respond to that through that obedience that comes from the ultimate trust, that comes from faith, knowing that He will not let us down. God never presents a lure to us. God presents us truth, the real thing. And Paul here says that it results in righteousness, not our own righteousness, of course, but the Lord's righteousness that is expressed in and through us. The example that Paul gave us in the previous chapter, in chapter 5 and in verse 5, was in the, in the terms that the, the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom God gives us. So just like it is the love of God that is poured out in our hearts, then then is supposed to be flowing through us to be expressed toward others. Likewise, Christ's righteousness in us is to be expressed through us as we participate in that willing obedience that we were describing a moment ago, 
But then something particular happens, something very important happens. If we participate in the work of God, yes, it is the work of God in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But as we are willingly participating or taking part in that, it also becomes eventually an expression of our own heart. And so that righteousness becomes our righteousness because as we participate in that, we want that. It's part of what we choose and our will. And so we take a step further into becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And his righteousness being reflected in us and through us becomes expressed as our righteousness. In verses 17 and 18, Paul wrote, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul here reminds us that we have been made free. Right? We are no longer slaves to sin. That means that we have a choice. Notice that he wrote, you were, in a past tense, slaves of sin. There is no option in slavery. You see, slavery holds us captive through oppression, through deception, through fear, and all sorts of different things like that. It forces us to go in a certain way against our will. Paul then continues in saying, you became obedient, so while we were slaves of sin, now you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. So now there is a, a commitment. Notice the expression that Paul uses here, from the heart. So this obedience that we offer is fruit of that freedom. It's a fruit of that freedom. It's an expression of the freedom that we have in Christ, a freedom that we can use to say, I don't choose one, I choose the other. So while before we had no choice, because we are forced in that, in that way, now we can freely choose God's way. And that makes a tremendous difference. As Paul continues, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness, servants of righteousness. So as we embrace that new freedom, we offer ourselves voluntarily, willingly, as servants of that righteousness. But notice that this is not imposed on us. This is something that we choose. We present ourselves to be those servants. We become slaves of righteousness. We make ourselves servants of righteousness voluntarily. And that's a very important choice. Which is also reflected in verse 19, which is where Paul wrote, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So Paul here helps us to reason about that freedom and our voluntary service to that righteousness that he's writing about. And so he says, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Now that's a reminder. This is not a question. It is not an instruction. It just reminds us that we've done it in the past. So what was the outcome of that? 
Paul adds, answer that question, it results in, or resulted, in further lawlessness. Notice the progression that Paul addresses here. We never, ever stand still. We either progress or regress, but we don't stand still. And here Paul reminds us that sin will generate more sin. And in fact, sin is like a drug. It may, a dose may be sufficient today, but it won't be enough tomorrow. Sin cries out, it's never enough. Sin wants more all the time, and it gets worse and worse. So that there is a degeneration, there is a progression towards getting worse and worse. But similarly, Paul here also writes, So now present your members as slave to righteousness. Now notice what he, what he writes in here is no longer a reminder, it's an instruction. Just like you did to sin. So now, do present your members as slaves to righteousness, in, in service to righteousness. So, if we serve righteousness, just like it, it, it Paul described for sin, there will be progression as well. But there will be a completely different fruit, a completely different outcome, as Paul wrote in here, in fact, resulting in sanctification. Sanctification being the process by which we become in actual practice who we are already declared to be in Christ. So there is also progression. But this progression results in sanctification. This progression is toward holiness, toward the, the full restoration of the image of God in us, toward the development of that and, and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's read now verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Notice here that Paul introduces a very important question. And that question should cause us to really pause and think. When we were slaves of sin, it says, we were free in regard to righteousness. Right there, Paul reminds us what Jesus said in his sermon on the Mount, I believe it is, that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and wealth. We cannot serve one master and the other. We can either serve one or the other, but we cannot serve both. We cannot go in opposite directions at the same time. We cannot build on sin and expect the outcome of righteousness. As unfortunately, like I said it before in, in the example of the relationships that many people build, they build them on sin. They, they choose to continue to progress in sin, but then they expect them to be blessed. They expect the outcomes of righteousness, an outcome that they honestly are not going to see. To see. Paul here then asks that question that I was referring to before. What benefit? What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Notice the change of heart. The fact that we are now ashamed of those things, that means that God is beginning, has begun to change our hearts, has begun to change our perspective. That's called repentance. But the question is good though, right? What benefits did we derive from that? And the answer would only be, well, there is no real benefit in that. 
because the consequences of that is broken or abusive relationships. The consequences are disappointments, betrayals, pain, suffering. The futility of a life that is spent trying to, to as, as the Ecclesiastes would say, trying to catch the wind, trying to catch a handful of wind, it's a futile endeavor that is not going to work out. And Paul, in fact, concludes that part by saying, the outcome of those things is death. Yes, the only true outcome of sin is not what sin presents itself like. It's not that lure that looks so beautiful, so shiny, so appealing, so appetizing. The real outcome of sin is destruction and death. It doesn't work. It will never work. In verse 22, then it's written, For now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. So Paul here immediately contrasts that thought, that may be a rhetorical question that is intended for us to, to reflect on what we were getting out of the way of sin, with an affirmation. And the affirmation here is says, having been freed from sin, that's a statement, we have been freed, and, and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. There is a benefit. So while before, it was a question. Was there any benefit? And the answer would be no, no real benefit. In fact, a lot of damage. Now, Paul offers a statement, an affirmation. There is a benefit. A life spent participating in the righteousness of Christ. It leads to relationships being mended and built. It leads to, to find meaning in life. It results in the fact that we have an eternal purpose. And we know that we have an eternal purpose and we can appreciate that and we can live for it. And it also grants us the experience of the joy and the peace of God, even in times of grief. An unexplicable joy, as Peter describes it, and the peace of God, even when the circumstances would call for something different. And what is the outcome of that? Notice in verse 22, it says, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So the result is a process, yes, but it's a process of growth, a process of growth that will continue to, as we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ, and that eventually will blossom into an eternity spent in the glory of God himself. And Paul stresses that because he wants us to visualize that. He wants us to keep our eyes on the things above, on our goal, on the goal that God has set for us, and not lose sight of it. And then Paul summarizes by stating, for the wages of sin is death. A clear-cut statement. What are wages? Are wages not the fruit of our own labor? Are wages not what we deserve, what we have earned? And Paul says, as we labor in sin, what we deserve, what we earn, the outcome of that is death. The outcome of sin, what we deserve for it, is suffering, misery, and then death, destruction. But Paul immediately adds, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what Paul wants us to concentrate on. 
that while what we try to do, work out on our own, doesn't work, the gift of God does. A gift is not deserved or earned. A gift only needs to be accepted and used. So here's legalism. Legalism tells me, no, I don't want the gift. If I'm under the law and I regard myself as under the law, it says, I don't need the gift. I can work it out myself. But here's what liberalism says. Oh, thank you for the gift. I put it in a drawer on the side and I no longer use it. I don't even look at it anymore. Well, if it's a gift that is going to produce something, it will produce it by itself. Neither one of that makes any sense. God's way does. God's way tells us, here's a gift. Open it. Enjoy it. Use it. Put it into use. Put it into practice and you'll, you'll, you'll reap the benefits of that. God's gift in Christ will give meaning and hope to our life. He will give us joy and fulfillment. And then, as I said before, He will blossom into an everlasting life in eternal fellowship with Him. So, brethren, in the matter of grace or law, or grace versus law, as some people put it, Paul reminds us that law without the grace leads to legalism. It leads to us attempting to earn what is impossible for us to earn. Grace without obedience leads to liberalism. It leads to a relaxed attitude, or I, I shall say probably a spiritually lazy attitude that says, well, I don't need to worry about anything. God will figure it out. Irresponsible attitude. But grace combined with voluntary obedience, combined with a desire to be in part of what God is doing, combined with participation, not passive, but active participation, that's what leads to the righteousness of Christ becoming more and more reflected in us and becoming more and more our righteousness because we partake of it and take part in it as our own, our own will our own choice in the matter of who we are and who we serve. Well, God has given us freedom. The freedom that makes us free from that bondage where we had no option, no choices. And He gives us now the opportunity to choose a different way from what comes natural to us, which is the way of sin, because that's what comes natural to us. But now we can choose something different. We can choose God's way. And it reminds us, as a warning, that if we choose sin, we are facing misery, suffering, and death. But if we choose voluntary surrender, if we choose to voluntarily give of ourselves to God, trusting Him, knowing that He has good, a good plan for us, a good purpose for us, then the outcome will be the gift of eternal life in God's glory. So, to conclude, brethren, perhaps the best way to conclude and to summarize all this is through the words of the Old Testament. God has placed before all of us a choice between life and death. So therefore, let's choose life that we may live. Choose life that you may live. God bless you.